Hello and welcome to On Landscape. Uh, I am here virtually with David Ward and Joe Cornish, uh, and we're about to have a short pilot episode of a Any Questions On Landscape feature. Hello, David and Joe. Hi. Hi there. Um, what we've done uh, is this pilot episode is to come up with a question each that we're going to ask the other two people um, and well, see how it works uh, and hopefully do this again next week and maybe have a guest. Uh, but we'll definitely be taking questions off, the, uh, off our readers. So if you, uh, if you listen to this, uh, there'll be a link on the article showing where to send some questions in uh, and we look forward to seeing what you ask, I think. Uh, we'll see how it goes. So, uh, to start with, who's going to ask the first question? Should we, should we go with you, Joe? Would you like to? Would you like to tell us what your first question is? Indeed, Tim. Well, why don't I ask David? Uh, okay. Because I think that uh, this is a question I've been wanting to ask David for a very long time. I might even have asked him uh, not too long ago and never got an answer. But I'm going to try it again, and that is, <laughs> when, <laughs> when are we going to see? The next David Ward book. Ah, he's gone. Oh, I, th I think my mic's gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah. Somebody said to me the other day, "Well, you're, you're in lockdown now for nine weeks, aren't you? you you're going to be writing a book, aren't you?" Um, I. My problem with a book is I have no particular desire just to do a portfolio book. Because um, for me, the ideas are as important as the pictures. Uh, so uh, I'm waiting really till I feel that I have enough to write about that's different from what I said in Landscape Within and Landscape Beyond. Um, so I, I suppose it's always tickling away at the back of my mind, but nothing particularly soon, I doubt. Okay, well, I think that's that's a very fair answer, and uh, I mean, you make a good point. It is important to have a concept for a book, without a doubt, and uh, especially, I guess it's probably fair to say that um, you're on a kind of new uh, new path at the moment with with your photography. So uh, it it makes sense maybe to continue for a a little bit longer before uh, you you kind of commit that kind of experience to uh, to a sort of permanent form. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly. I think I've, my method of working has to, had to change quite a lot using digital, so that's part of it, I suppose. Uh, and I know you went through similar kind of difficulties swapping from uh, using a, a a view camera to using a uh, a different kind of um, instrument for capturing pictures. Um, but I think fundamentally, it's it's always for me, ideas driven. Um, and I'm always in awe of people who can sort of reinvent themselves every five years or something. You know, you look at various artists who seem to be able to do that. And uh, I wish I was capable of that, but I don't seem to be. So I'm waiting for that reinvention, I think. <laughs> I'm sure it'll come. I'm sure there will be a moment when, when it feels feels right anyway. Uh, should, should we should we move on then? Because that that did put you on the spot, David. I do apologise for that. But... <laughs> Good first question, Joe. There was, there was, there was a pregnant pause, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. <laughs> there was. 
Uh, well, Tim, if I if I were to um, ask you as our sort of resident, uh, not only our our host of On Landscape and uh, the editor and um, and so on, but uh, and the originator, uh, but also um, our scientist, our boffin, um, everybody knows you for that. Um, and so I'm wondering, with your your kind of prophetic hat on, what you can see coming down the track for photographers in the realm of technology that could uh, in, improve, enhance, or generally uh, enrich our lives um, as as working photographers. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a really tough one because I think one of the biggest changes um, um, that will come in photography is to do with computational photography, um, which is the idea that uh, the individual frame isn't as important as a series of frames and what you can do with them collected together. And a good example of, of that is what you have in your new IQ4 camera, Joe, which is the frame averaging feature. Uh, yes. and that, allow, that allows you to, instead of taking a long exposure photograph, you can take multiple short exposure photographs without an ND filter and the, the, the computer within the IQ4 will combine those frames together reduce the noise, increase the resolution, um, etc. So there's there's quite a few features around that. So one one I was I would expect to see um, that increase in the dynamic range of cameras uh, significantly. Um, so we, we'll I think we'll see the end of of um, having to worry about blowing out skies at some point in the near future. Um, and mm-hmm. the cameras, as far as resolution goes, I think we're hitting a point where to be honest, once you get to about 50 or 60 megapixels, the the need for more is is a moot point. You know, this, this, it's always nice to have a bit more scope, but it's not stopping anybody making very large prints anymore. So yes. lots, lots, lots of the improvements will be around the, um, the proprioceptive functions around photography, the haptics, the, the way the camera feels and works, the way the viewfinders work to aid you. Um, and I can see a point in time where the camera can recognize certain landscape constructs and start hinting at where to put things in the picture. But for the, for the majority of us as photographers, the nice thing about the, where we are with technology now is the camera is starting to get out of the way rather than be in the way. Um, and I know for myself, when I'm using my Sony a7 R3, I can pretty much ignore the camera now and just use it, use it. Uh, as a, a very good viewfinder, uh, shows me a, a nice colour representation of the world um, and the results just work. So that that is, I think, one of the biggest wins recently. Same with optical stabilisation, etc. But as far as computational photography, I know that companies like Microsoft have done these uh, software packages that construct 3D objects out of video content or multiple photographs. And I wouldn't like to predict where that goes, but I don't. I still think that the core of photography will remain around the, the, the ability to take pictures. So the better thing is the camera gets out of the way and the results uh, give you the flexibility you want. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's no, really, really interesting, really interesting answer. and. Uh... I hope I think I think you must be must be right. Uh, you know, really, what we've seen being innovated 
primarily through uh, phones uh, will inevitably, well, as you already implied, it is already appearing in instruments like the phase one. And um, I'm sure we will see it in mainstream cameras uh, very soon. It, it, it surely is inevitable. But it, but equally, I think that just the idea of the camera itself being uh, something that, that gets out of the way and allows us to work uh, in a way that's completely natural and intuitive is is actually the main advance we we can hope for. What about you, David? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with the um, completely agree with uh, your assessment of pixels kind of having reached a level where it doesn't make a difference. I certainly see a difference if I look at something off the A7R4 that I use compared to something off the phase. And part of that is to do with size of the sensor, so yep. less closely packed. Uh, and uh, part of it is to do with more pixels. So it's not about making a bigger print. It's about the quality of the color ah, yes. and the smooth yeah. of the transitions. Yeah. And more pixels definitely helps with that. Um, so I don't, I, you would know better than me, I guess, but I don't know how close we are to physical limits on cramming pixels into a 35 mil size sensor. Well, that's an interesting one because I was having a conversation with Alex Nail earlier today, um, and when I've just, we've just recently published an article on Petapixel, one of our uh, the the Phase One IQ4 versus the eight by ten challenge, and there were quite a few discussions about um, where the limits were. Somebody was saying, "Oh, well, you know, you can only get about 100 megapixels out of modern um, lenses." So I went and looked at old uh, lens tests from Zeiss. And they have some tests from a, 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 one of their best 50 mil lenses that was showing, I think it was 400 line pairs per millimeter. Uh, and to translate that into megapixels, it was a file that's about 40,000 pixels wide on a 35 millimeter frame, which is, I don't know, it's 600 megapixels. So I don't think there is a limit. Obviously, it's the, the, the problem is it's diminishing returns because the contrast of those pixels at that level will be, will be tiny. You know, so it's... Um, you won't be seeing the individual pixel, one black and one white next to each other. It'll be fine gradations of gray, but often that's what makes a picture quite tactile is those subtle transitions. So I, I suspect it'll keep on going to about 150, 200 megapixels on 35 mil. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Yeah. It, it's, but what, sorry, uh, I was just going to say, David, before, uh, you, you were diving in there, that, um, that perhaps the advances are, uh, are are things that we we do appreciate, and I'm sure that that listeners to this will appreciate because uh, we're all photographers, and and a lot of us are quite obsessive about uh, about these very subtle distinctions. In the very same way that musicians, when when they sit around and chat about instruments and playing styles and performance, they they understand the subtleties with great precision because of their uh, in-depth experience but it's also worth pointing out um that uh the kind of relatively less educated audience if i can put that in the politest way possible um probably don't know and don't care oh i, I think i think that's almost inevitably true I and mean, i think i think that's been true throughout well through pretty much through any visual medium uh, actually any any creative medium, there will be people who 
see the nuances and subtleties or hear them or or observe how well they've played if it's a musical instrument and others who do not um and i guess i'm i'm asking it from the position hopefully of somebody who has some understanding of that a, a little <laughs> <laughs> Well, think... it's a really interesting time, and, and one of the things that I've found uh, particularly interesting it, as as a printer is the question of texture. And so, well, well, don't want to get too off the beaten track here, but um, I, I have noticed that there are some images in particular where introducing a little bit of, of grain, film style grain, which is in di digital terms is, is a form of noise, can actually improve the feeling of a, of a photograph. Seems very counterintuitive, but uh, that's one of those things that maybe Tim, you can enlighten us on why a slightly randomized kind of underlying texture helps make a picture yeah. look better. I, I would completely agree. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why that is though. It's uh, it, it, it seems to give you something for your eye to grab hold of, but that's a very unscientific way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen anything like that, David, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's also, it's part of the language of photography. So uh, we're used to grain, looking at photographs which have grain. And if something is too perfect, too smooth, the transitions are too wonderful, then uh, there's some loss of information, some loss of, uh, um, it's not subtlety or nuance. It's, it's I don't know, it's, it's a, it's like timbre, I think. Yeah, you know, in a voice, it's it's that kind of, it's analogous to that. So if somebody sings with a perfectly pure voice, that is wonderful. But if somebody sings with a you know a particular timbre, then that that is quite emotive. I think it's that kind of difference. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I, yeah, I, I agree. <clears throat> There's one uh, one thing I seem to remember reading years and years ago now, but by a, a large format photographer, I forget who it was. Uh, and, and he said that he didn't, he didn't like to use 10 by eight because it was too perfect. And <laughs> five by four, he felt suited him much better. He, he really liked the, the language of five by four, the smaller format, because it had a kind of texture to it. Yeah, and I think you can see that with people who use uh, alternative processes or or use pinhole cameras, or uh, even you know the grungy filters on a on an iPhone or an Android phone. Um, those are all things that are, if used well, ways that you can add uh, some uh, yeah some texture to to the picture that will aid whatever um, emotive message you're trying to put across. Yeah, part of the language of yeah. photography. It's. Uh... Yeah, and, and it does, yeah, it's interesting that we see the, these pictorial features in in photography coming back more recently as well. With the with the availability of photography everywhere, people are starting to look at pictorial features to differentiate themselves. I mean, lo lots of that is very facile, but there's a lot of interest in alternative processes re resurging at the moment. Yeah, and I think I think the, I think the the kind of desire to uh have a craft element to it i think plays into that as well um rather, rather than it being a kind of purely technical uh rendition of an image 
Okay, should we move on to another question? I don't. Um, David, do you have a question for either me or Joe? I do. I have one for each of you. Yes. Well, who shall I go with first? Um, I'm going to go with Joe. So this is this is a hypothetical question for you, Joe. Um, during the current pandemic, approaching a fifth of the world's population is in lockdown. Is there any one place, either somewhere you've already photographed or somewhere you have never been to, that you would like to photograph whilst it's now completely devoid of human beings? <laughs> Why? Well, wow, what a question. Uh, of course, the question of whether it's completely devoid of human beings given, given lockdown is a moot one, because even though we are in lockdown, it's remarkable how how people still seem to be getting out and about, legally or otherwise. Um, <laughs> uh, there, are, there are probably a few places I'd, I'd like to... Well, gosh, what a fantastic question. Um, which, ironically, I suppose that the sort of places that I would most like to discover would be the places that, that really are those that perhaps for all of us on some level we we hold in our imaginations as as lost worlds so uh the, the one that initially seems to spring to mind is Angkor Wat for example in is it Cambodia which I gather is now a very very densely populated tourist location and for that reason alone I you know without wishing to sound elitist but I would probably never choose to go there um, but I have seen pictures of it and temples which have, you know, have uh, thousand year old trees growing up through them. And, uh, and to me, that's a, you know, that, that's a wonderful image and sort of connects me to uh, back to the, you know, Britain perhaps of 250s, 300 years ago, when the, the ruined monasteries of the medieval period and uh, and some well, actually, they were monasteries, mainly that were sacked in the Reformation, uh, abandoned and, and left as ruins, and just such fantastically poignant uh, examples of where human structures have been recolonized by nature, uh, and and I love that imagery, and I would love to make images of such places. Unfortunately, in the UK, that's never going to happen because they've all been restored or uh, preserved by English Heritage, the National Trust, uh, made safe, secured for future generations, and usually mown to within an inch of their life, um, uh, which to me always takes all of the romance out of them. Um, and, uh, and, and while I, I think that the, the places like uh, Angkor Wat uh, probably did retain a little bit of that atmosphere up until maybe two decades ago. They too have now been, as it were, commercialized. And so, yes, I suppose it would be that kind of location, uh, maybe a Machu Picchu in, um, in uh, Bolivia. Uh, that would, that would really, I'd love to visit somewhere like that where there was no one else, even mm -hmm. for this short time. Yeah, I, that, that's interesting. I, I thought um, I thought you were maybe going to say somewhere in the UK that's normally thronged with people. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are a few places like that. And actually, there would be some amazing uh, urban environments uh, that that would look really, really interesting, unpopulated. Um, but uh, as I sort of implied, I think there's still people wandering about everywhere. At least there is in our village. Um, I don't know about yours, but uh, yeah. I, so it's difficult to know exactly how, if this is a, a kind of completely, is this is actually how it looks now? Or um, if one could remove everybody, uh, where would you like to go? So. Yeah, so actually, you're kind of saying that what you want is a time machine rather than just to walk out now. Because <laughs> um, you, you want to see the, the overgrown, or you want the lockdown to happen for a year, let's say. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I well, it might be, need to be a bit longer than that, but, but in some ways, particularly bringing it back to the UK, um, you know, the beauty of, our, of many of our, our ruined sites is, is fantastic. But but they do look um, what's the word? They've been they've been sanitised yes. um, by uh, by the need to preserve them, and and that's very understandable. But it, it does take the romance out. So yes, I, I guess I mean Revo Abbey, which you must know, David, is is yeah. not too far from either of us, and you know a fantastically beautiful architectural site. Uh, I love going there. But I'd love going there a great deal more if it was overgrown. This is when we need yeah. some of these uh, Hollywood um, artists to create 3D models. You know, I, I really like seeing these pictures in post-apocalyptic movies of how New York may look 100 years after the apocalypse. Yeah, see, <laughs> there you are. Yeah, absolutely. See all the tram stations all regrown be... and things like that. Yeah, yeah would you would you have uh, would you have vegetation growing up the Empire State Building and? And Absolutely. presumably half the windows would have fallen out and had things and had birds would be nesting inside it and so on. Amazing thought. Well, it's it's it's, it's probably one of the fascinations people have with Chernobyl, isn't it? The uh, I know that people are organising photographic trips to Chernobyl for the same sort of feeling. Yes, Pripyat, isn't it? The yeah. uh, the dormitory town of Chernobyl, um, which is where they have trees growing up out of all of the courtyards now where children used to play yes. uh, and yeah, most of the windows are now fallen out of the buildings and, and yeah, and, and wildlife is, is taking over. Yeah. It's, um, it's turned into, uh, uh, what's, what's he called? The guided stalker, uh, Tarkovsky was he called? I can't remember. It's sort of turned into that post-apocalyptic view, hasn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I for me, yeah, I mean, I, Sorry to kind of answer my own question, as it were, but for, for me, I think I would want to go to somewhere which uh, would not include signs of man, particularly. Um, I think I would want to go to somewhere that uh, that normally these days uh, is thronged with with humans and see what it it looked like without humans there. Um, did you have anywhere in particular that you were thinking of? It's no doubt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a bit mad the other weekend, wasn't it? Yeah. Was what are their busiest days ever? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, I probably Iceland, and and um, because Iceland is so elemental, I think. 
you actually wouldn't have to wait very long, I don't think, before it um, before all signs of man had disappeared. Um, uh, and I, you know, when you and I first visited in ninety uh, nine, was it or two thousand? I can't remember. Ninety nine. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, then uh, we were kind of in that first wave of of tourism, I suppose. Uh, not that people hadn't been going there, but there certainly was not much in the way of a tourist industry at the time. Um, and you could still go to places and, and you know, the locals were there, um, but you had no sense that um, that it had changed very much in very many years. I, I remember in Norway, um, in Lofoten, um, going to a beach at a place called Merland. Uh, and I think there were five of us, I think, and we went down on the beach. And the locals all came out from the village to have a look at these strange <laughs> visitors who were who were there to photograph their beach. Weird. You know, it was it was, it was a it was a, a spectacle for them, um, and you got a real sense that 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 beach, for as long as people have been there, for you know, hadn't really changed very much. Um, and I, I like I like that kind of feeling. I think. Definitely, but yeah, I, two worlds, two very different solutions to the uh, proposition. Actually, that's really interesting. So, um, do you, Tim? Do you? Uh, shall I ask you um, yeah. your your question? Yeah. I'm um, sorry. You, you've um, you've uh, you're uh, stereotyping as the boffin, as unfortunately, <laughs> it's ugly headed. So, I can be the geek. Well, not necessarily boffin. Um, so. Landscape photography is, um, one might say, notoriously an outdoor pursuit. Yes. Um, currently, we can't. Uh, in fact, definitely should not, if we, especially if we reference something like uh, Snowdonia, go to the great outdoors. Yeah. So what would you advise landscapers to do that you would think would pay the biggest dividend when the restrictions of travel are lifted? Oh, um, play the biggest dividend and like environmentally or culturally. Uh, that's up to you. Okay. Or 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 in technique or yeah, this is I'm I'm not giving you any clues here. Oh, all right, okay. That leaves a bit of scope for interpretation. Uh, <laughs> ponder that for a minute. Well, I, I'm. I'd like to think that this this period is going to change uh culture and people's approach to life somewhat i'm i'm not optimistic enough to say it'll revolutionize capitalism etc but i i do think people may think more about the people around them and society as a unit uh and and if that were to happen i would hope that in, individuals could take more responsibility for the environment they live in um and that involves, I mean, I've just re recently written an article for On Landscape about how you might help campaign locally on issues to do with the, uh, to do with the land. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just, is just people paying attention to what they're doing. I think there's a, there's a lack of awareness of how the individual impact can accumulate when so many people do something. There's very much, oh, well, I'm not doing any harm myself. Um, whereas if everybody thought a little bit about it, they could lessen their impact slightly, which 
would accumulate to a, a great deal. Um, but I think I think it, I would also like to see people think about how they could engage. I mean, I I, I helped try and work with a campaign for Glenetti, trying to prevent some of the hydro schemes from going in, and we were not successful. However, I quickly realised that the solution to everything is political, and I know Greta Thunberg has has said this before. We can. We can act individually as much as we like, and we will never change anything. Um, the ultimate change has to com come from politics. And as landscape photographers, I think we were more reclusive outside of politics than most people. I'd say we were probably more socialist in our outlook. Uh, or, or, but, but it would be nice if people played a little bit of a role in politics. That's outside of landscape photography, though. So. Um, does that sort of answer a little bit of what you were asking, David? Um, well, I, was, I think I, I was more trying to ask what could they do whilst they're in lockdown. Whilst they're in afterwards. lockdown. Oh, yeah. well, that's, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, creatively, I think there's still a lot of scope. Uh, I mean, people are, people are getting frustrated saying I can't do anything. And yet I look at uh, Michael Jackson with his photographs of rocks suspended upside down in water with bits of bread floating around that look like uh, um, islands in the middle of a Atlantic Sea. Um, uh, I think back to, I think it was Claude Lorraine who used to use broccoli as trees and make himself little, little scenes on a tabletop to paint. And I think there's lots of scope to be, to play around with composition, I think I'd say. Um, we, we... I, sorry, can I can I yeah. jump in there for a second? Because uh, I think I think it's a re it's a really fascinating question, uh, and, and one of the things that we we often discuss with uh, with groups based on what kind of camera people use or where we are in the world or whatever is the question of limitations and what a powerful creative impulse being limited can be. Yes, you know whether it's because you use only one prime lens on your camera or you only have one type of camera, a film camera, let's say, or in this case, we've got, we can't go anywhere, but we can go so, we can do so much in our imaginations. And we probably can take a camera with us when we walk out the door, you know, on a, on a daily walk. And yes, it is easier if you live in the countryside, no doubt. But um, there is, a, there's so much scope and being limited actually forces us to engage uh, with our immediate surroundings more, or it should do, I think. And to me, that would be uh, the answer to the question. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and I was about to say it it's, gives us more opportunity to play with composition because when the materials in front of you aren't as exciting and enticing, it's up to you to create something from them and therefore the way you structure and compose them becomes the most important thing, which is a great learning lesson. Uh, you, you may not create yeah, the best yeah, work, but you can come back and maybe take that learning when you uh, finally come out from quarantine. Yeah, I mean, I, if I if I would think of an example, it would be um, Blakemore with the tulips or any of those things that he did inside his kitchen for 20 years or more, wasn't it? And, you know, he, he, he didn't, for a lot of time, he didn't go very far, but he still made some amazing sets of images. A, a couple um, of his books he did uh, recently were, were were 
crystals hanging in the window with a very shallow focus lens or pictures of the aces in his garden, which are fabulous. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think about four of his books were done within uh, 15 yards of the house. Yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah. really true. And it, and it shows that it's all about a, a way of seeing in that sense. Yeah, you could also think of somebody like Paul Kenny and the and the the sea Strandline series. Yeah, yeah. So sea I, works. Yeah. the key the key to that is 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 digging deep. I think um, with Paul Kenny and John Blakemore, they would pick an idea and they would just hammer it to death. Go go deeper and deeper. Try things out. Get an idea. Work that idea for a week. Um, and and things just appear, ideas appear. It's it's difficult to do. It's difficult to stay committed to that something so narrow, but it pays dividends, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Is it time okay. for your questions, Tim? I, I yes, I have I have the same question for both of you. Um, ah. and I'll start off with I'll start off with Joe. Um, as a person who's, who's, I mean, I've been a little bit uninspired about my photography for the last, uh, maybe six months, five months. Um, my question is, what what points have you been the least inspired in your photography? And also, what points have you been the most inspired? Uh, and, and what do you think triggered those moments? Oh, um, well... Uh, I've certainly gone through long periods of being not very inspired, and so, and at the moment, since I'm I'm reviewing my archive, um, it, it, it at times can be quite. Um, it's making me feel quite despondent because as I go through the years, there are there's several years when I'm opening up folders which are in alphabetical order, just uh, deleting old stuff that I don't need to keep, and and looking out for gems, for hidden gems. And I have to say, there are certain years where there's nothing almost nothing that I want to keep. I'm not that I'm throwing it all away, but, uh, but where, where it's, I can see the practice going on. Um, and, and yeah, just so before I try to answer that, I'm playing for time here, Tim. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm just, uh, my feeling about photography is it's, it's a form of practice and, and you just have to keep going. However uninspired you feel for me, that's always helped me psychologically, I think just to cope with, with life's ups and downs and I've, I've always in that sense found the process of making pictures very therapeutic but um what so when have i been uninspired i think uh, to an extent my longest period of uninspiration is has been was was down to uh and i didn't really think of it like this but effectively abandoning film or abandoning uh especially my beloved ebony 5x4 camera and it wasn't that I ever felt I had abandoned it. I, I always felt I was going to go back to it one day. And then a day came when I realized I hadn't shot with it for several years. And, and that effectively, I committed myself, you know, for better or worse, to the digital workflow. Uh, and yet, because uh, I'd chosen to uh, use the, the phase one process in the, um, and, and stick with the large format uh, process it was it was difficult as you know the the technique isn't easy yeah the the uh the ccd sensors are really not very nice uh to use and really that that um fortunately has now changed um but i what i realized is although we we've often said oh well it's not about the camera 
We've all felt that in, at, at various times. We can only feel it's not about the camera when we're happy with the camera. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and exactly. So um, so yes, yeah, so I guess that uh, now uh, I've, I've I feel I've I've overcome that uh, those problems. And the last two years, actually, a uh, combination of using uh, Sony cameras, which I love. And, and the phase, especially with the new phase back now, which I also love, and, and that, that, that somehow that I, I'm, now, I'm not worrying about the cameras any longer. They're yeah. not getting in the way any longer. And, and as a result, I'm, I'm feeling that I'm producing, hopefully, more inspired work, not necessarily every time I go out, obviously. Yeah. Um, but when I look back over these last two years, particularly 2018 and 2019, I've made a number of pictures that I'm really happy with. I'm really excited about. And you know, what what's better as a photographer? That's really what what you hope for in your life, in a way. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and and a lot of that is is to do continuing the practice, you know, persevering, and 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 yes, actually, ultimately, technological change that's come along and supported me in what I've been trying to do. And and. That's fantastic, Jim. And and what about yourself, David? If you if, uh, I know you've had the odd moment of uninspiration. Uh... <laughs> I think it's uh, it's coming up to forty years. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> when am I felt least inspired? Uh, well, I, I, I I'll echo something that Joe said. I think that uh, for me there was almost a sense of bereavement of using of moving away from uh, using a, a, a view camera. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that it, we go back to what Joe was talking about earlier about restrictions and the, the view camera gives you opportunities to do things with focus and, uh, and depth of field that you can't easily do without tilts or movements, but it also has a lot of restrictions, um, especially using transparency film in terms of uh, contrast um, and physical restrictions. How, how close can you get to the subject with the camera? You know, it's a, it's a big thing. It blows about a lot in the wind, all of those kind of things. Um, but you get, you get used to dealing with those, those restrictions. Uh, and when you change format, you end up with a whole different set of things that you have to learn how to deal with. Um, and I think that's why it's a difficult process. It, you know, given that in, in basic terms, photography is, should in, in some sense feel exactly the same. You know, it's all about light and time. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what gives you your exposure. Uh, it, it, the camera has a bigger effect on it than we give it credit for, I think. Um, so that's probably the, the time that I, I felt least inspired. Uh, and that coincided pretty much with the point at which I moved to Africa and didn't really do any photography for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, which I think was a necessary, a necessary break for me. Um, when have I feel, felt most inspired? Um, that's, that's, there wasn't like a golden age. There wasn't a period okay. of, you know, like, oh, yes, 19, 1993 to 97 was Great brilliant. vintage. 
uh, it, you know, it's it's odd flashes here and there. I don't know. I think it's uh, it's um, Adam's twelve photographs in a year or less. Some years, like Joe said, some like some years one, some years two, some years more. Um, and I think that's because photography depends upon so many well certainly landscape photography depends upon so many chance events coming together you need to have uh the skill to uh render what arrives and to be able to recognize an opportunity but you also need those chance events the light being in the right place you wandering around a corner in i don't know in a woodland and seeing a, a particular tree yeah, uh, in a particular kind of light at a particular time of the year, um, and so there's a large number of possibilities where nothing will come together, and a, and a, a very small number of possibilities where actually there is the chance to make something very worthwhile. So I think I suppose it's just being in a constant state of uh, of readiness. Uh, and just hoping, I so think. You, so you've got to be out there and, and ready for something to happen for it to be inspirational. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not how everybody works, is it? I mean, no. if we think about Paul Finney, then 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 he's 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 working on a path. Um, but my photography is largely depended on um, me finding things that I find visually intriguing. Uh, rather than creating something that I find visually intriguing, yeah. Uh, so I think that's that's probably the reason why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think we're coming up to uh, forty well, three quarters of an hour, forty five minutes, which is a nice length for our our chat. Um, thank you very much for both you and David for for joining us on this. I know you've, uh, well, I suppose at the moment there's not much not much better to do. Um, but we'll we'll look forward to asking more of these questions and getting some questions from our readers as well. So um, we, until... we'd love to. I think that'd be great. I'd be I'd really really like to encourage anybody who's enjoyed this to uh, uh, to send in questions. And also, if you have any any photographer uh, who you recognise as being part of this group or community, uh, I'm sure we can reach out to them and get them involved as well. That'd be brilliant. So. Uh, Thank you both and I look forward to 